If you will, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 9 as we continue to walk through the book of Exodus together, specifically as we come to now uh, this place in the text where we are studying uh, the plagues that God has brought upon Egypt. Uh, As you turn there, I just want to say thank you for allowing me a little time away. Uh, Sandy and I and the kids were able to go to the Smoky Mountains last weekend and enjoy time together, and I appreciate Pastor Nick as he preached uh, last Lord's Day, and I'm sure you were blessed by that. Uh, We had a good time away. Uh, We did not see any bears. Uh, The closest thing we saw to a bear was uh, our son when it was about two and we hadn't eaten lunch yet, and uh, he was growling like one, but we had a great time away. And uh, it's always good, though, to be home, and it's very good to be here with you today. As we now come to the point where we begin into the second half of these plagues, we've looked at how God has brought a great calamity on the Egyptians. Uh, he is judging them and judging Pharaoh and judging their false gods for the way they have treated his people as he prepares to deliver his people. So he's brought that judgment on them really through cutting off their resources. He turned the Nile River to blood. He brought frogs and gnats and flies upon the land, and that destroyed many of their crops. It affected much of their livelihood. We even saw in that fifth plague how God has now began to destroy their livestock, and all the livestock that was out in the field was killed and destroyed. And at the same time, we've seen how God has protected His people from this destruction and from these plagues. And so we'll continue today by looking at the sixth and the seventh plague, uh, the plague, uh, the sixth plague where he brings boils on the Egyptians and the seventh plague as he rains down thunder and fire and hail on the people. So we're going to look at a little bit of a longer section today, uh, Exodus 9, 8 through 35. Uh, so out of reverence for God's holy word, if you will stand if you're able, as I read this text for us. We live in a day and age where people often will say things like, uh, I just wish I could hear from God. Well, if that is your wish, it is about to be granted. Because this is God's word to us. And this is what God says. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. And it shall become fine dust over all the land of Egypt and become boils breaking out in sores on man and beast throughout all the land of Egypt. So they took the soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. The Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I raised you up, to show my power, so that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people, and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow I will cause a very heavy hail to fall, such as never been seen in Egypt, 
from the day it was founded until now. Now therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, so that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man and beast and every plant in the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his staff toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord held rain of, uh, held, rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field and all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hand to the Lord. The thunder will cease and there will be no more hail so that you may know that the earth is the Lord. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck down for the barley was in the ear and the flax was in the bud, but the wheat and the emmer was not struck down for they were late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hands to the Lord. And the thunder and the hail ceased and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So that the heart of Pharaoh was hardened and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. If you would pray with me. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus and once again we see from your word the danger of a heart that is hardened towards you. Father, I pray for us today that our hearts would not be hard towards you. I pray for God, your, your wisdom and your insight and your mercy and your grace to be just so evident through your word to us this morning. Help us to see it. Help us to believe it and help us to respond to it. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I want you to consider two people this morning. We'll call the first one Beth. Beth is someone who was taught about the Lord from a very young age and, and raised to believe God and to trust in God, surrounded by a family uh, who all believed in God and trusted in God. And so Beth, like the family she was raised in, uh, believed, had faith, uh, did very well. Life was going uh, very good for her. Uh, she settled into a career in finance and, and she just prospered. Things were going great. She was on a, a path to success then one day things started to fall apart for Beth. Her, her lucrative career 
seemed to be at jeopardy when she found out that the partner she was working with had entered into a very prosperous deal, but a very unethical deal. Beth was the only one of the group who said she wouldn't go along with it. And, and rather than the group then responding to her and saying, well, we won't do it either, uh, they decided to move ahead with it, put her name on it. And when they were found out for the way that they were moving forward, when the unethical nature of it came to surface, they pointed the finger at Beth and Beth was immediately terminated. Things then moved from bad to worse for Beth as seemed that everyone in her family began to suffer in different ways. Her parents, her siblings, there were deaths in the family, there were illnesses in the family. Things continued to go downhill for Beth as her finances fell apart. She had built a lifestyle around this career she had, and without that career, she couldn't maintain that lifestyle any longer. And so soon she lost her home and her car and many of her material things. And then when it seemed like things couldn't get any lower for her, her own health began to fail. Beth went to specialist after specialist trying to find out what was wrong with her, but none could really pinpoint it. They just told her, you're very sick and we don't know how to help you. At that low point, Beth turns to you and says, where is God in all of this? Where is God in the midst of my suffering? How would you counsel Beth? As you consider that, consider the life of another one. We'll call him Tom. Tom grew up in a very different home than Beth. His was a very secular home. He never had any interest in religion or in God. His interest was in material things. Tom's motto in life was, you do what you need to do to get ahead. And so that's exactly what he did. And so he lied, he cheated, at times he even stole. And it seemed that every time he did something wrong or unethical or immoral, he prospered from it. In fact, Tom seemed to want for nothing. He had a bit of a Midas touch. But that touch involved him being a liar and a thief. And yet, he never suffered any ill for it. One day, Tom was driving in his brand new convertible downtown. He comes to an intersection, and there is a street corner preacher shouting out, Turn from your wicked ways and trust in the Lord. As Tom pulls away from that intersection, he just laughs to himself and says, Well, my wicked ways are treating me just fine. Imagine you were able to have a conversation with Tom about faith and about the gospel. What, what would you say to him? What would you say to this one whose livelihood was built on wickedness, who felt no shame, no guilt for any of it, and who looked at God as this fictitious story? What would you say to a wicked person who was prospering? What would you say to a righteous person who was suffering? This question is not just one that we are presenting hypothetically this morning through the story of Beth and Tom. This is a question we see that follows throughout generations the people of God. Because as you study the story of God's people and you study God's Word, you find very often it is God's people walking in faith many times even who are suffering and it's the wicked who are prospering. And so oftentimes in the Scripture we have this question screaming out from us to God. God, why is this? And consider the prophet Jeremiah. The prophet Jeremiah was one who knew great suffering. He's one who called people to repentance and yet nobody would repent. 
And in his suffering, Jeremiah 12, he said this, Why does the way of the wicked prosper? And why do all who are treacherous thrive? And consider the call of the psalmist of David and other psalmists who often would ask this same question and even get to the point we read in Psalm 73 when one of the psalmists looks to God and begins to envy those who are prospering in their wickedness. Psalm 73, verse 3, the psalmist writes, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Perhaps some of you can identify with these questions we see raised from Jeremiah and from the psalmist. These temptations there. These wonderings. God, why is it that those who have faith and trust in You suddenly at times and ongoingly at times just suffer many times with no relief inside? And then at the same time, those who have no desire to have a relationship with you, have no faith in you, they seem to thrive and they seem to prosper. And then even as that's happening, we might be tempted to look to them and to envy what they have, even though they stand separated from God. How do we reconcile these issues? How do we counsel one another in regards to these things? I don't think it will surprise you this morning for me to say that we, we find our counsel in the Word of God. But it might surprise you when this question came up to say a great place to look is at the plagues in Egypt. <laughs> but in these very plagues, we see God dealing with this question that was likely on the heart of the Hebrews for generations. As there in the land of Egypt, they suffered immensely under a wicked Pharaoh after a wicked Pharaoh after a wicked Pharaoh. And as they suffered for generations, they would cry out to God, likely asking God, why do your people suffer? All the while, why do the wicked prosper? Well, if you have considered this question, I hope you will be encouraged and informed as we study this text today, because I think in looking at these plagues, we can see some answers to these, or at least how we might reconcile these things. And we'll begin with the first point there in your outline, the understanding that, that one day, one day, the Lord will bring comfort to the afflicted, and He will bring affliction to the comforted. The Lord comforts the afflicted, and He afflicts the comforted. The, the wicked will not always prosper. The righteous will not always suffer. One day God will bring an end to the affliction that is on the righteous, and one day God will bring great affliction onto those who are wicked and yet seem to be prosperous and seem to be comforted. And we see a very clear picture of that and what God is doing through these plagues. We'll begin here with the sixth plague, this plague of boils, just looking at a summary of what's taking place. Uh, yet again, the uh, Lord says to Moses and Aaron, this is what you're going to do. This is the sixth plague. If you remember from our previous studies, there's patterns of three in the plagues. So in the first of the pattern, plague one, plague four, plague seven, you see God giving a warning to Pharaoh, telling him to let his people go or this is going to happen. In the second plague, you see God just telling Pharaoh this is what's going to happen. He doesn't give him a chance to let his people go. He just says, here's the plague. And then by the third plague, the sixth plague, the ninth plague, you see that he just does it. There's no warning. Well, that's what's happening here. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron to take soot 
from these ovens, likely ovens that were made to cook bricks, and to throw them in the air. And then as that, that soot, those ashes were thrown up into the air, they're going to become, the Lord says, like dust that's just going to cover the land. And as they settle on the people there in Egypt, immediately they're going to break out in these terrible boils all over their body. And not just the people, but even the animals, man and beast. Everyone's going to be affected except for God's people. His people will not be affected by this. And so, that's exactly what Moses and Aaron do. He tells him to do this in the sight of Pharaoh. And so, the indication there would be, as we read, the Pharaoh's magicians are covered and all the Egyptians are covered. Pharaoh is likely covered in these boils and these sores as well. So, so what do we learn from this? How does this apply towards this point that God comforts the afflicted and afflicts the comforted? Well, consider for a moment this plague in light of the previous plagues we've studied. The previous plagues were on the resources, really, of the Egyptians. God cuts off their water supply when He turns the Nile River to blood. God cuts off a lot of their food supply when the frogs and the gnats and the flies all come and swarm and attack their crops. God further attacks their part of their workforce and their food supply and their resources when He kills so many beasts that are in the field. But now, the Lord is attacking the people. And now the Lord is bringing this plague on the people themselves, specifically in front of the Pharaoh on Pharaoh and on the Pharaoh's court, and specifically on these magicians. And when we consider that, that reminds us how all these plagues are not only judgment on Pharaoh and on the Egyptians, they're also judgment on the false gods of Egypt. And those who represented them, like these magicians. These magicians were priests of Egypt. These magicians are who you would have gone to if you were an Egyptian and you wanted to make a sacrifice or you wanted to worship one of these false gods of Egypt. And it's actually interesting when you study exactly what these magicians, these priests did and see kind of the irony of what's taking place here. And these priests of Egypt would often, after a sacrifice had been made to one of these false gods, they would take the ashes of those sacrifices and they would throw them in the air. That was seen as a sign of blessing on the people. As those ashes settled then, if you got that ash on you, that was considered to be a, a blessing by the sacrifice to this false god. And yet now, notice what's happening. The Hebrew people are the ones who are blessed. The Egyptians are the ones who are suffering and they're suffering under a curse that comes through these ashes being thrown in the air. It also is a reminder to us that God is bringing judgment, not just on these magicians, these priests, but also on the false gods they represented. That There were many false gods and goddesses there in Egypt, but you may remember before me mentioning Amon Ra. Amon Ra was believed to be the creator god who, according to uh, Egyptian history and documents we've located and found they said this of amen Ra: he dissolves evil and dispels ailments amen Ra is the physician who heals so just think about that imagine you were an egyptian in one day this dust begins to come into your village and into your community and as it settles you and all your family members begin to break out in these terrible sores but you've been taught all your life that you can go to Amen Ra because Amen Ra is the one who heals. He is the physician who heals. 
And so to go to Amen-Ra, you have to go to his priest. Now the priest of Amen-Ra would be one without blemish. These priests couldn't have uh, visual defects or blemishes because they were seen as being pure. They were seen as the ones who could make sacrifices on behalf of the people. And so it was very important that they were clean, that they were pure. And so you gather up your family and you gather up your livestock. You go to look for one without blemish to make an offering. You can't find one because they're covered in sores. So you think, well, maybe I can buy one there at this temple. Maybe I can take one with me. And as you go, you see the commotion around the temple. The temple of Amen-Ra. There's all these other families just like you are gathered around. And there's commotion, there's chaos, because there's no priest to make a sacrifice. Because the priests themselves are unclean. The priests themselves are covered with sores. You can't make a sacrifice to the God who heals, because the God who heals can't heal. And there you have God's judgment on these false gods and goddesses of Egypt once again. And God is reminding not only the Egyptians, but also the Hebrews of His power and of who He truly is. And at the same time, He is reminding them of His justice. If you grew up in another family, not that Egyptian family, but in a Hebrew family in the land of Goshen, you would have had a very different experience than the average Egyptian. You would have known suffering. You would have had days that you sat down to have a meal with your family and you had siblings, perhaps parents, loved ones and friends who didn't make that dinner because they had died as a result of the harsh treatment that day. You would have others who would share with you about how difficult it was to meet your quota of bricks about how uh, this one named Moses had returned to the land and gone and talked to Pharaoh and how you and so many thought this would bring relief and yet this had already brought to you further calamity and suffering because now your quota was increased now you had to make more bricks with fewer resources and every waking moment was spent standing by that brick oven making these bricks over and over and over again arms legs sins from the heat of it and that oven then would have been filled with ashes from what was burned and from the residue from those bricks. Can you see the justice of God and what takes place here? That, that soot, that ash that would represent the suffering of the Hebrew people, that's the very thing that God says to Moses, take that and throw it in the air. And now this is going to represent blessing for my people. And now this will be a part of my people being set free. And as it blesses my people who have been cursed and suffered, it will curse those who have brought this calamity on my people. One commentator said it this way, the type of furnace spoken of here was probably an oven for burning bricks. The furnace then was a symbol of the oppression of the Hebrews. The sweat and the tears that were shed to make bricks for the Egyptians. This very soot made by the enslaved people was now to inflict punishment on their oppressors. And so what God is doing through this sixth plague is He is making Israel's curse a blessing 
and he's making Egypt's blessing into a curse. Or you might say it this way, through this plague, God was bringing comfort to the afflicted. And he was bringing affliction to the comforted. So why do we need to consider that this morning? Because some of you this morning feel rather afflicted. And in your affliction, in your suffering, you are tempted to think God has forgotten you. The Hebrew people over centuries of enslavement were likely tempted to think, God, have you forgotten us? And in this plague is a reminder to us that God does not forget His people. No, God has not forgotten you. In fact, He has given you and I a promise to hold on to in the midst of our affliction and our suffering. And one of those promises is in Revelation 21. It is one that I have held firm to in times of suffering. And one I want to encourage you with today yet again. One day, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. God gives us a promise, brother and sister, that in our suffering, in our affliction, it will not last. It is temporary. And one day, He will bring comfort to us in full, not in part, but in whole. And that comfort He will bring will wipe every tear from our eyes. There will no longer be death or mourning or suffering. No more. It will be gone because of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. That suffering, that death, those tears, that mourning, it all goes back to the garden and it goes back to sin. But in that moment when Adam and Eve sinned against God, God gave a promise that we can hold firm to today. He said a Redeemer would come that would crush the enemy. And that if we would turn from our sin and trust in that Redeemer's sacrifice for our sin, if we would repent and believe, then we have a promise to hold on to and we have a hope to hold on to. Restoration and redemption. And so if today you find yourself afflicted, you need to remember God has not forgotten you. But I wanted to speak to some others today as well. Because there's also a word here for the comforted. Especially to those who find their comfort outside of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who find their comfort in sin. Those who find their comfort in wickedness. Those who find their pleasures in the things of this world. And those who may be here this morning putting on a external appearance for us but their hearts not here god hasn't forgotten you either and he's made a promise to you as well romans 6:23 the wages of sin is death and what god has promised in his word is that one day one day as he right the wrongs that were afflicted on His people, He will also bring great wrath and calamity on those who refuse to repent and acknowledge Him. 
And that one day you will stand before a holy God either clothed in the righteousness of Christ, trusting in Him, or standing before Him with this silly notion that somehow your good works are going to outweigh your bad works. Friends, know this and consider this. You will find out on that day your good works weren't very good. And your bad works were worse than you thought. And the scales will only tip one way for those outside of Christ. God has not forgotten you in your sin. And God's wrath will punish sin. I know that it is not popular in our culture and even in our churches today to speak about the wrath of God and hell and judgment, but my concern for you is not popularity. It is the state of your eternal soul. And it's the truth of what God's Word says and the hope that can be found in it. The prophet Isaiah says, on behalf of the Lord, I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. But our response to that might be like that of our fictitious tongue. Wickedness feels pretty good right now. And we speak so much of God bringing judgment and wrath, but look around. Where, where is it? Are we really experiencing it? We see people all the time, headlines on the news, or just people in our own lives. They do wicked thing after wicked thing, and yet God doesn't seem to just instantly bring His wrath on them. And so what are we to think of this? Is this some just ridiculous notion to scare people into right behavior? Or is there a seed of truth to it? Will God really bring wrath? And if He hasn't yet, why not? Well, again, I think we see a picture of this in this text today, and it's the second point there in your outline, taking us to this seventh plague. The, I believe when we look at this passage, what we see is that the Lord is patient. The Lord is patient and holds back judgment while calling people to repent. And so, there's a reason that there's not just one plague. And you realize, don't you, that there could have been zero plagues. I mean, God could have delivered His people from Egypt to the promised land in any way He chose to do. He could have just zapped them there. He could have just had them walk out. He could have had every uh, Pharaoh and Egyptian just fall down before Him. But God brings these plagues upon them. And the question is, why? Especially when we get to this plague, the plague of hail. This is another in the first of sets of three. And so here, again, we see God is warning Pharaoh yet again. Let my people go that they may serve me. And God is warning Pharaoh again. If you don't do this, I am going to bring a storm like you've never seen or you cannot even imagine. There's going to be thunder and fire and these enormous hailstones are going to rain down on you. When I was studying this text, I couldn't help but think about the worst hailstorm that I've experienced, which fails, I'm sure, in comparison to many that have happened in our nation. But this was a number of years ago. Sandy and I just bought our first home in Bowling Green. Little new construction there. I called them cookie cutter houses. 
just bought that home. We were there on Western's campus one day as part of our campus ministry, and this storm came in. And these just huge hailstones began to just pelt the city. Now, I'd seen hail before, but, but I knew something was different when I saw students walking in with just giant whelps on their face and their arms. The sides looked like they'd been pounced with just softballs. And then as we tried to make our way home after the storm, it normally would take 15, 20 minutes to drive to our house. It took us hours that day. We were just trying to find a clear route. I remember driving down roads where, where telephone poles were just snapped in two and power cords just laying in the street. I remember driving down the main road there, Scotch Road and Bowling Green, and every single car at every single dealership had no windshields, had their side view mirrors just destroyed and ripped away from the cars. These giant hailstones just plummeted that city. We finally got to our house and I told Sandy, it looked like somebody with a machine gun showed up and just all across it. And that was, honestly, that was just a hailstorm like many have experienced. You read the seventh plague and you start reading about trees getting snapped in half. I mean, God is dropping down something on Egypt like no one had ever seen before and we've probably never seen since. And as he brings down this destruction, it seems that Pharaoh has a change of heart. Notice as we continue in verse 27 there, then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron. And even here I wonder, how in the world did Moses and Aaron get to him? You know? They would have had to carry just logs over top of them or something to survive getting there as this hail is raining down. But notice what Pharaoh says. This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Now, if you've been with us through the plagues, you know how outstanding and astonishing it is for Pharaoh to say that. And this is the same Pharaoh when Moses first comes to him and confronts him in the name of the Lord, who says, I don't even know who this Lord is, and I don't fear this Lord. And now, what does he say? He says, I've sinned against the Lord. And the Lord's right and I and my people are wrong. Now just think about that in our context today. Think of the most wicked person alive today that you can... Please don't shout names out. Especially if they're sitting beside you or something. But just think of somebody in your mind who you would consider in our world today a wicked person. Five minutes from now, they walk right through those doors and walk right up in front of this church. And they say, I have heard the preaching of the Word of God and I realize I have sinned against God. And I realize for the first time in my life that God is in the right and I am in the wrong. How would you respond? <laughs> Praise God! Where's the membership cards? Where's the piano? They're in the piano bench over there. Let's give them to fill. Man, let's baptize them today. Let's, let's stay after and baptize them today if we need to. We would likely respond to that excited. We'd be thankful. Look at the confession they've made. Friends, I've been in ministry many years. I've seen many people place their faith in Christ and make confessions few as clear as this one. Few as clear as someone just flat out saying, 
I have sinned against God. God is right. I am wrong. And that's what Pharaoh does here. And yet, Pharaoh was not repentant. He wasn't repentant. And we'll look at why in a second. But I want you to consider that how outstanding that is that here Pharaoh seems to have this change of heart. And yet God continues to bring His judgment on him because God knows he really hasn't changed. And he's bringing this judgment on the people. He's bringing this judgment on their gods. And the question is why? Well, God gives us an answer to that in this plague of hail. In fact, it's an extended account much more than the previous ones. And He says very clearly, here's the reason I'm doing this. Verse 15. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. God says to Pharaoh, by now I could have just gone and you're gone. I don't need to exert any more effort with you. I mean, I know it's cute and we sing it as kids. He holds the whole world in his hands, but you realize the implications of theologically that he can just pluck you off the world anytime he wants. Or if he were to remove his hands from the world, we would scatter and be in chaos. And so God in his sovereignty is saying here, Pharaoh, I could have just wiped you out a long time ago, but I haven't. And the question is why? Well, God answers the question he puts out there. That's usually how he does it. And he says, but for this purpose, verse 16, I raised you up to show my power. And so God is showing his power over Pharaoh. This man who says, I am God, worship me. God says, no, I am God, worship me. This man who points his people towards these false gods, yet again towards another false god. There were many false gods involved in creation and weather. And here I believe God is bringing further judgment on them. Uh, Asis was one of them that was believed to be the god who gave the rain when they need, the goddess that brought rain when they needed rain and kept storms back. And yet what happens here? This storm just continues to pounce them. And so God is showing His power, but I want you to notice what else He's doing. Verse 20. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. One of the reasons that we have ten plagues and not just one or none is because God is gracious and merciful and He is giving many opportunities for repentance. And that's important for us to remember. Especially as believers. Because the implication of that, this idea, this notion, this belief that God is patient towards us and withholding His judgment so that many might come to repentance, the implication for believers is we need to get busy and tell people about the Gospel while we have the chance to. Because there's going to be a day when God's not going to hold that wrath back any longer and there's not going to be another chance for us to tell people about the Gospel. And then there's also an implication here for unbelievers for those who've yet to repent and believe, perhaps some of you this morning who on the outside things look pretty good, but on the inside you've never repented and trusted in Christ. The implication for you is believe while you can because you don't have a promise of tomorrow. Now I realize you have probably heard that before and so your response is, well yeah, I heard that last Sunday, but here I am again. <laughs> We don't tend to get up in the morning thinking, this is going to be the day I die. Yep, I'm certain of it. 
we always think we have another chance. In fact, we get to the point, God says in our heart, when we begin to look at these notions about judgment and Christ's return, and we think, really? I mean, it hasn't happened yet. Is, it, is that really coming? 2 Peter 3. They will say, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. People are going to look around the world and say, well, this whole Jesus, that's, that's 2,000 years ago, supposedly. He's coming back, really? He hasn't come back yet. I hear people talking about God's judgment, God's wrath, but wickedness feels pretty good. So why doesn't God just, just rain it down right now? You continue that passage. Verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. Why doesn't God bring immediate comfort to those who are afflicted today? Why doesn't God bring immediate judgment to the wicked today? God's not on our clock. God's on His own clock. And God has a plan. And God says, one day is a thousand years, a thousand years is one day. But then He says this, verse 9, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so God gives us and you and our stubbornness another opportunity so often because His desire is that we might repent. But don't be foolish today to take advantage of that. And don't say, well, if God's going to give me time, then I'll just do that another time. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Burned up. A thief. I've never talked to somebody who had their house broken into who said to me, I knew that thief was coming today. <laughs> they just come. And then you look and go, ah, what happened? Well, if I'd known, I, could, I didn't know. It was God says one day He will come like a thief. And so today, at this moment, right now, He hasn't come yet. He might come two minutes from now. He hasn't come yet. He might come two years. He might come 20 years. He might come 2,000 years now. He hasn't come yet. And so we have this chance, this window, this opportunity to repent. But the problem for so many of us is we don't fully understand what that means. Because we have confused remorse with repentance. And that's where I'll leave us this morning. Point three, remorse. It's not the same as repentance and it doesn't always lead to repentance. Remorse is sorrow. It's feeling guilty. It's feeling bad. That is not the same thing as repentance. Remorse can lead us to repentance. But just because we're sorry, that doesn't mean we're repentant. And if you want a picture of what that looks like, exhibit A. Pharaoh. A man who says, This time I have sinned, the Lord is right, and I and my people are in the wrong, and yet you continue in the passage, and what does he do? Verse 35, So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, 
And he did not let the people of Israel go just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. But he said the Lord was right. He walked the aisle. <laughs> he got baptized. He joined the church. It seemed like everything was just what it needed to be for a while. I mean, it just seemed like his heart had changed. What happened to him? Friends, the reality is nothing happened to him. And that's the problem. Because Pharaoh is a picture of so many of us today. We, we sin. We feel guilty and we feel bad and we feel remorse and regret. So we vow. We hit that bottom. We vow. We promise. Oh, I'm just not going to do this anymore. I'll never do this again. And then we behave for a little while. And we have this pattern of, of remorse and regret and behave. And we tend to clean things up and things look a little bit better. And then people around us say, oh, I'm so glad they're doing better. And, oh, I really think this is it. I really think they've got it together. I really think this has changed. Friends, it's not enough for you to be sorry this morning. And it's not enough for us to have remorse or guilt this morning. We need to be repentant. So how do you know the difference between someone who's remorseful and someone who's repentant? The Scripture says that repentance bears fruit. That's how you know the difference. John the Baptist, as the religious leaders of his day come to the rivers, he's baptizing for repentance. He looks at them and he said, who warns you to come here? And then he specifically says this, you don't need baptism. You don't need another confession. You don't need to come forward. What you need to do, John says, is go bear fruit in keeping with your repentance. The religious leaders of his day, like many of the religious of our day, and perhaps some of you this morning, were very good at external conforming, but not very good at actual genuine repentance. Repentance bears fruit. So you want to know if someone in your life was truly repentant, look at the fruit of their life today. And you want to know if you truly repented, look at the fruit of your life today. And if you can't look at my life and I can't look at your life and we see of each other very clear life change because of the Gospel, then here's the reality. The indication is neither of us ever repented and we're still going to spend eternity in hell. And we can sing the same song all day long there, but I said I sinned, but I said God was right, but I said I was wrong, but I said I was sorry, but I said I'd never do it again. And we can make all our vows, and we can modify all our behaviors, but unless there's genuine heart change and repentance, then friends, we're not saved. And so this morning, the invitation is not for you to regret and behave. It's for you to repent and believe. And apart from repentance and belief, you stand under the judgment of God who right now today is patient with you. But one day will bring that judgment in full. I'll leave you with this. Another commentary on this book by Philip Reich. And he says this, Many people are filled with today with remorse without ever truly repenting of their sins. The best way to tell is to see what happens after they confess their sins. True repentance is a complete change of heart that produces a total life change. Did you hear that? 
True repentance is a complete change of heart that produces a total change of life. By that standard, Pharaoh's confession was false. It was only temporary. So what do you do with the person who joined the church and hasn't come back in 40 years? You look at them and say, your confession was false. Because it was only temporary. He goes on to say, once the storm stopped and the plague was over, his heart was as hard as ever. It turned out he did not want a change of heart after all. He just wanted God to leave him alone. But a confession that does not lead to new obedience is a false confession that falls short of true repentance. And if that is where your confession is today, it has fallen short. And so the invitation is for you to truly repent and believe. If you are here this morning and you are suffering and you are afflicted and you are wondering, God, have you forgotten? Be mindful and be encouraged. God has not forgotten you. And if you're struggling this morning as you look around, and why do the wicked prosper? And why do the righteous suffer? Be encouraged. One day, friend, one day, God will right all wrongs. And between this day and that, He calls us to trust in Him and trust in Him, not in part, but in whole. Because Christ paid the debt of our sins, not in part, but in whole. If you would stand together as we pray together. Father, I am mindful that the words that have been shared this morning may fall on deaf ears because I consider the deafness of my own heart for years. And I'm thankful, Lord, for the day that You opened up my ears to hear and my eyes to see. And I pray, God, I pray, God, that You would open up eyes today and ears today and hearts today that people might repent. We don't need any more behavior modification we don't need any more remorse and regret we need genuine repentance and life change and god i pray for any here who's yet to repent that they truly would and i pray god for others here who have repented and yet this morning they're struggling lord they're suffering they're afflicted and they're wondering how much longer god would you encourage them through the promise of your word that one day one day one day lord you will wipe every tear away. And for others, Lord, here this morning who perhaps they're struggling with people in their life, people who uh, appeared to repent but really were just remorseful and, and have told them time and time again, well, I won't, I won't, I'll never, I'll never, and yet they keep doing the same thing because, because we're slaves to sin, Lord. Would You encourage them with hope of the Gospel and would You call those around us to genuine repentance? Lord, help us this morning not to leave taking advantage of this day that You've given us by walking away from it, but help us to leave taking advantage by repenting while we have an opportunity. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.